A ruined planet cannot sustain human lives in good health. A healthy planet and healthy people are two sides of the same coin. That's a quote from Dr. Margaret Chan, executive director of the World Health Organization. This is Climate Futures, a podcast that talks to Harvard professors, experts, and activists about key possible solutions to climate change. This season, we're talking about some issues Kim Stanley Robinson doesn't cover in his book, Ministry for the Future. A bit of a funny framing for today since we're talking about healthcare, which is such a central issue to climate change. And we have a wonderful expert here today, Kathy Gerwig, who is a leading expert on environmental stewardship and climate change and led one of the biggest hospital systems in the country, Kaiser Permanente, into a bunch of really amazing environmental stewardship programs, which we'll hear about today. Uh, Kathy, thank you so much for being here. Would you mind telling me a little bit about yourself? Uh, I'm Kathy Gerwig, and I've spent the last three decades working on environmental stewardship in the healthcare sector. And I uh, retired a couple of years ago and now spend my time uh, doing pro bono consulting, mostly with nonprofit groups that are in the health sector decarbonization work. Awesome. Okay. And you have a great book out called Greening Healthcare. And one of the main takeaways from it for me is that greening hospitals actually represents a huge opportunity to improve health. So let's talk first about that connection between climate change and healthcare, which isn't necessarily intuitive, both to health people and people in the climate world. What are some of the health effects that climate change might have on people? Some of the health effects of climate change, because a warming planet exacerbates uh, climate systems and weather. And so Injury and death from severe weather events like hurricanes and wildfires and floods. Uh, we have more infections that spread because of things like mosquitoes and ticks being in areas where they didn't used to exist. Um, there's water related infection spread because uh, of drought and water systems being contaminated. There's food related, agricultural spread of infections, uh, again, because of contamination. Um, and a big one is respiratory illness from uh, poor air quality, and air quality gets worse in uh, a warming planet. Another one that um, doesn't get as much attention are the mental health impacts from the trauma of these uh, severe weather events and also just deep anxiety because particularly among youth, they are wondering about a livable future. So these health impacts are happening today, they're getting worse, and there is uh, intense urgency in addressing them. Yeah, definitely. I see some of those mental health effects, even in my peers, people around me. So how does health care, the delivery of health services, relate to climate change? The health sector is actually responsible for eight and a half percent of U.S. carbon emissions. And globally, it's about four and a half percent. The healthcare sector is also burdened with the costs of climate change. According to the Natural Resources Defense Council, the health costs of climate change are $820 billion per year in the U.S. And then there are business risks for healthcare organizations. Five years ago, it was unthinkable that uh, in California, whole communities could be wiped out from wildfires. And yet that happened in October of 2017. And today it's a it's an annual occurrence. I bring up uh, this wildfire because I worked at Kaiser Permanente at the time and the Kaiser Permanente Hospital in Santa Rosa, that fire came up to its boundaries. And at that hospital, all the patients had to be evacuated. The hospital was shut down for 17 days. There was an enormous financial cost to that, as you can imagine. Every 
supply item in the entire facility had to be replaced. Uh, smoke damage had to be cleared. But what really struck us was the human cost of it, not just the community being devastated, but just at Kaiser Permanente, 200 staff members and physicians lost their homes completely. Um, that's a cost to the health sector. It's a cost uh, in many ways to the people who work in healthcare. The last piece I want to bring up is um, around supply chain disruptions. The disruptions in the global supply chain that happened during COVID are similar to the kinds of disruptions that happened because of climate change. Uh, I don't know if you remember Hurricane Maria, but it turns out that that resulted in in a lengthy national shortage of sailing bags. So hospitals live and breathe by sailing bags and we couldn't get them. So that was an early example of a supply chain disruption, but it means that um, these climate exacerbated shortages in pharmaceuticals and medical devices and sailing bags, even food and building products, um, all of that impact healthcare in a very direct way. And how prepared would you say the hospital system is right now to respond to these crises? There are uh, hospitals that are quite active in addressing a variety of environmental issues. And in particular, there are about 1,100 hospitals in the U.S. that belong to a member organization called Practice Green Health. And that is a um, it's a arm of Healthcare Without Harm, which is a global NGO working on decarbonizing the healthcare sector. And so these 1,100 hospitals are um, part of a group that is looking seriously at actions they can take. They share information and they are really on the leading edge. That said, there are about 6,000 hospitals in the U.S. And so we still have a way to go. We need to get everybody involved in this work, taking meaningful action today. Um, if we're actually going to be successful at, a, at addressing climate change. And is this different internationally, especially in the developing world? At COP26 in, in Glasgow, um, the, there was a health program introduced in 51 countries pledged to cut greenhouse gas emissions from their health systems. Uh, that was co-sponsored by the World Health Organization and Healthcare Without Harm. Um, that is the largest global effort to date to reduce contributions by the world's hospitals and healthcare industry to global warming. Um, and the pledges, these 51 countries included a lot of low and middle income countries in the global south. Some of those are the most vulnerable, which is, um, you know, climate change is uh, affecting uh, the ability for their nations to be habitable, like Fiji, Bahamas, Maldives. Um, but actually, other health systems who aren't as prone to sea level rise, they look at ca low carbon strategies as a way to build climate resilience in their facilities. So there is a state in India, it's called uh, Chadeska, and the government there has committed to solarizing all of their health facilities. And that makes them uh, at, by the way, at the same time, they're they're investing in energy efficiency. So this strengthens their ability to provide health care to the 
communities in that area, and they can um, are more resilient to extreme weather. So there, there are lots of other examples of hospitals in uh, Asia, Africa, Latin America that are implementing climate smart strategies really because of the benefit of resilience. Another international example is uh, the NHS in the UK, and they were the first system in the world to say that they're going to be net zero by 2045. They've created a roadmap for decarbonizing their supply chain. Um, They're looking at how care is provided and low carbon opportunities for that. There's a lot that we can learn from the NHS. All right. And now focusing on just American hospitals, we've talked about hospitals being a huge part of our economy, huge consumers, a huge portion of emissions. So you talk about a bunch of different ways in your book that hospitals can reduce their consumption, their waste and their emissions. And you're very persuasive that a lot of these interventions are actually saving money or are good decisions regardless. Um, Another theme of your book is multiple interactions between waste, climate and health, for example, food affecting health, climate affecting health, food affecting climate. So let's start with that triangle. Could you talk a little bit about that food and hospitals? A fourth of all greenhouse gas emissions come from food production. Um, Healthcare delivery organizations, hospitals serve a lot of food to patients, to visitors, to staff, which gives them a purchasing opportunity to make make a difference. Food systems that are highly industrialized, uh, highly processed food contains a lot of sugar, a lot of fat. That's a big health issue, of course. But it turns out that to reduce the disease burden that comes with those unhealthy food systems, that we can take actions that really focus on uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions you do things like you reduce the amount of meat. You produce plant-forward meals, meat-free options, plant-based options. It's much healthier. Another strategy is to purchase locally and sustainably grown and produced foods. That's, you know, part of the overall supply chain approach where you're building local economies in a way that you're not doing when you're buying from multinational uh, industrialized food systems. Uh, Food waste is a huge contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. And so reducing food waste, recovering food waste, repurposing it, um, especially in areas uh, that are experiencing um, hunger, that's a way you're addressing community health as well as reducing greenhouse gas emissions. It's equitable, it's biodiverse, and uh, allows you to have resilient local agriculture. One last thing that you have in your book that really struck me that I'd like to mention is you talk about a model where you pay in advance for local crops. So farmers have security that someone is going to buy their crops and hospitals are big enough to pursue this option and place these kinds of big orders, have this purchasing power. Um, yeah. And you so you mentioned food waste and you discuss waste more broadly in your book as well. And one thing that you talk about is that hospitals are unique in having a lot of waste that is bio waste, waste that if it's burnt might release toxins into the atmosphere or otherwise be harmful to health. So what's up with this waste? How can we address the amount of waste? that's inappropriately sorted or thrown away without resulting in any danger or law breaking? Uh, So waste in hospitals has to be carefully segregated into different waste streams. It is highly regulated since hospitals have not only uh, general business waste like paper and cardboard, uh, they also have radioactive waste, toxic waste such as chemotherapeutics, pathology waste from specimens, um, used needles and other biohazardous waste, 
pharmaceutical waste. So these are all important waste streams to handle very carefully. The environmental challenge is to prevent unnecessary waste um, and to recycle everything that isn't hazardous. You know, what are some of the actions? Well, one is to move away from single-use plastic. 8% of the world's oil production goes into plastics. With the drive toward renewable energy, the fossil fuel and petrochemical industry is doubling down and shifting the direction of oil and gas from energy to plastic. So you're going to be seeing more and more plastic coming into our lives. And we want exactly the opposite to happen. Actions around this include things like um, focusing more on reusable supplies and equipment, looking at reusables, reusable supplies, reusable linens, reusable equipment, um, reducing waste from procedure kits and trays. So when you go in, even for a minor procedure, it's likely that the clinician will open up a, a package that's already been pre-prepared and has the things they most likely need to handle the particular procedure you're having. Uh, often, some of the things in that package are not used and they turn into waste. Hospitals can control what goes in kits and trays. They can look for things that are reusable as opposed to prepackaged in that way. UCLA Medical Center went to reusable isolation gowns instead of disposable gowns. They saved a million dollars. They diverted 300 tons of waste from landfills and the uh, employee surveys showed the reusable versions were actually more comfortable and safe. That all reduces greenhouse gas emissions. So um, making that connection between uh, where the petrochemical and energy industry is going and viewing that piece of this work as just as important as moving from fossil fuel energy to renewable energy. Uh, we have to be focused on both those areas if we're actually going to achieve a net zero future. And is there anything else? Are there other important ways? You know, to really make true lasting change that's even more meaningful for climate, uh, implementing circular economy principles where materials are kind of endlessly cycled and have shorter supply chains, that's where we need to get. So rather than buy, use, throw away, or even recycle, materials are designed for recovery. Um, owners of those materials see value in recovering the materials as opposed to a cost at the end of life when they uh, dispose of it. I think that circular economy idea is absolutely vital, not just in healthcare, but in a lot of climate-related thinking. I wonder, though, if you've seen with it in healthcare, certain companies whose model is based on producing plastics or single-use devices have something to lose from that model. And have you seen resistance from that quarter or even just status quo inertia that prevents us from moving towards the circular economy model? In our industrialized capitalist system, companies are there to return a profit to their shareholders. And um, so linking their profitability to a circular economy is gonna take work uh, because their systems are not set up for that now. So, uh, so let's talk about purchasing in healthcare um, because hospitals are large volume buyers. They are also anchors in their community. They're often one of the largest employers serving residents in a community. Um, 
And U.S. hospitals do most of their procurement through what they call group purchasing organizations or GPOs. That's an incredible opportunity to make changes where there's the most leverage. The conversations that are happening are about what is the total impact of that spending muscle? Um, How can they make purchases that, of course, result in high quality care at an affordable cost while making the most positive impacts in their communities? So how can you do more to buy um, from local and diverse suppliers? Um, How can you hire within the community? How can you have a more positive impact on the environment by buying products that don't contain harmful chemicals? And how do you move toward a low or zero carbon footprint in that process? Yeah, I see how other efforts to move towards community healthcare, preventative care, trying to make healthcare more affordable, trying to reduce waste, and reducing emissions, of course, are all closely related. I do want to focus a little bit on toxins. Uh, In your book, you write about getting tested and finding a lot of really common toxins in your body, which is kind of a scary thought that many of us, most of us, in fact, have chemicals in our bodies. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the relationship between chemicals and climate. Through biomonitoring, we know that uh, even communities that are pretty isolated, uh, folks there have toxic chemicals in their bodies. And we know um, the impacts of that from a health perspective uh, include everything from cognitive diseases, cancer, uh, the gamut. So stopping harmful chemicals from being used in products is uh, an extremely important health and environmental pursuit. So clearly the, the laws around chemicals in this country um, are not protective of human health. Uh, Most chemicals are not regulated. Uh, New products are not required to be proven to be um, safe from harmful chemicals when they're released into uh, the, uh, the, the world. And that, that surprises a lot of people. People think, oh, well, if I can buy this, um, you know, detergent in the market, well, it, it must be safe for us, right? And the answer is no, we don't know if the chemicals in there, the fragrances, the um, other kinds of chemicals that you might find in detergent, we don't know that they're safe for humans. Um, it's not required to have them tested. Uh, Bringing that into a climate perspective, we also are, there's no requirement that products are developed in a way that reduces greenhouse gas emissions. From a climate perspective, let's focus on petrochemicals because the petrochemical industry represents a significant source of emissions and pollution. And that is because nearly every piece of plastic begins as a fossil fuel. Wow. And so that just ties right back to what we were talking about earlier about reusables and the importance of moving away from plastics uh, and how we can maybe combat petrochemicals in this way. And when we're worried about chemicals, we really should think about plastics and about emissions as well. So you wrote also in your book about lobbying from the chemical industry and difficulty finding out what chemicals are in certain things. I wonder if you can talk about how that has changed and whether the pivot to plastics you're talking about has uh, had any effect on this. Well, there are very powerful lobbying forces uh, within the chemical industry and the energy industry. And, but with purchasing and investor pressure growing, um, manufacturers and suppliers are 
realizing that in order to make sure returns to their investors continue to be profitable, that they have to make some changes. Um, I think reducing emissions, especially from energy and um, petrochemical plants, is where a lot of environmentalists and climate activists are focusing their time because kind of regulation is very controversial. There's a lot of money invested in keeping things the way they are. The other area where there's been a lot of attention is around the circular economy notions and making product producers responsible for their waste um, and forcing more circular economy processes in order to remain competitive and profitable. Those are areas where I think we're, we're going to see some interesting advocacy work going on. Have you found that in response to purchasing pressure and advocacy around climate that companies have actually responded with greenwashing? Uh, Greenwashing, for those who don't know, is in marketing a product using language that makes it sound like the product is quote unquote green while actually pretty much doing the same emitting or polluting as usual. Have you seen this phenomenon? And if so, what can be done about it? Yeah, well, unfortunately, greenwashing is very much alive and well. Um, Things like claiming that an organization is carbon neutral is easy to do. And um, it's actually not that difficult to eliminate greenwashing, um, but it needs to be done in a a way that uh, is all encompassing. So, for example, if a company is going to say they're carbon neutral for their operations or um, that they're moving toward net zero, they need independent third party verification of emissions to do that. And they ought to publicly disclose those verified emissions. Interestingly, the SEC rule proposal does just that. It says that you have to report your emissions, they have to be verified, and uh, they have to be disclosed. And so that's what it takes. But unfortunately, lots of folks are making claims and um, they're not verified. The best kind of um, advocacy, I think, is where uh, we all demand that companies follow these things. Are you following the GHG protocol? Are your targets science-based aligned? Are you using third-party verification? Are you disclosing through CDP? These are things that allow us to say, then you're not greenwashing. And now I can be certain that what I'm buying from you or what uh, the company I'm investing in is actually gonna help the world get to a net zero future. All right. So there's some great tips there for consumers and for investors and even for me in my day-to-day life. Uh, Let's return to your book quickly. You also write about the built environment of hospitals. A lot of emissions are involved in the actual buildings. What are these and what can we do about them? So hospitals and other medical buildings uh, create about 20% of a care delivery system's greenhouse gas footprint. Uh, And so it's a, a big chunk and there are a lot of great examples of green buildings in healthcare. There's a Kaiser Permanente Hospital in Richmond, California, and it was the first to have a solar-powered microgrid with battery storage. And um, while that might sound pretty technical, the fact is that every hospital has to have backup power. And 99% of the time, that means a diesel generator uh, and a tank of diesel that sits somewhere on the property. So to move away from that, could we have 
a solar powered backup system. And it's uh, key that it has battery storage. So we know that one of the developments that need to happen uh, with renewable energy is we need to be able to store that solar energy that's on your roof so that you can use it at nighttime. Well, the same is true with uh, this microgrid idea. I bring this up because in addition to providing secure backup power, it also augments power at peak hours. And the beauty of that is that it reduces demand from the grid while reducing cost to the user. So there are other examples of um, a number of systems now are putting in uh, hybrid geothermal heat pumps, and that cuts fossil fuel use in half. Um, There are a number that are looking at uh, how to make, how to reduce emissions associated with transportation, not just of employees, but also uh, visitors. And that backup power, I assume, is also useful in case of some kind of climate-related natural disaster, flooding, whatever. So there's a feedback loop here. So with all that information in mind, if you were in charge of a health system and you were choosing just one thing to focus on, what would you hope a healthcare system would pick as their number one priority in greening healthcare? I would say the most important thing to do today, uh, because climate change is a health crisis, is I would like them to commit to a net zero future. And then understanding their emissions, you know, unless you do an inventory and really understand what your greenhouse emissions are from, you're not going to be able to make the, uh, the best decisions about how to reduce them. And 80% of emissions come through the value chain. So a lot of the work today has been on the 20% of, of emissions that are within the direct control of the healthcare system. Um, but 80% comes from the value chain. And by value chain, I mean both supply chain of purchasing and also um, investments that are being made. And uh, it turns out that there are just a few categories of activities that actually have the most greenhouse gas impact. For example, purchase goods and services is one of the categories of this um, supply chain emission. And when you begin to hone in on that, you begin to see, oh, this is where if I make a change in this area, it can have a huge impact on my value chain emissions. Uh, It turns out that meter dose inhalers were kind of the big product line that had the biggest emission impact because they contain a propellant. And so is there a way to redesign inhalers that don't also have the same emission impact? That is driving a whole R&D process in that field right now. You can't make that kind of change unless you understand your emissions and that's inclusive of your value chain emissions. Great. So know what you're emitting and try to get it to zero. I want to end with a kind of imagination exercise. If you're stepping into your ideal hospital, this green hospital of the future, what does that look like? That ideal hospital is a place of uh, comfort. You might see aspects of nature brought in, art, things that really focus on the human health aspects. And with that, a lot of renewable energy on site. And you would not get the odor of a lot of cleaning chemicals, that it would just be a fresh place, a clean place, but not 
chemically saturated and that they would proudly display information about their emissions and what they're doing about it. Um, some, some organizations feel like it's a point of shame to disclose emissions. And the fact is, well, we're all emitters of greenhouse gases. So let's just put it out there and tell people what we're doing about it and invite the community into that process. So, you know, healthcare has a mission critical imperative given that climate change is a, a global calamity and healthcare has an opportunity to mobilize its power and play a leadership role at all levels of society. So stepping into that role, being upfront and garnering collaboration throughout the health sector can actually move the broader economy to decarbonization. It's an extremely powerful opportunity. So my view of healthcare of the future is that 100% of the healthcare system would see themselves as catalysts for this change and uh, work toward it. I think that's an awesome note to end on. Thanks so much to Kathy Gerwig, healthcare expert and author of Greening Healthcare, for coming on today. You've just heard Season 2, Episode 1 of Climate Futures, a podcast that talks to Harvard professors, experts, activists about possible climate futures, possible climate solutions. This season, we're talking about a couple of elements that I maybe wish had been included in Kim Stanley Robinson's novel, Ministry for the Future. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Annalisa Kingsbury, your host, and this has been Climate Futures. Thank you.